All right, good morning, everybody. Mark 11, two verses this morning. That means very little. You know we'll still go 50 minutes, right? The title is Forgive. Mark 11, 25 and 26. Let's turn there in our Bibles. Let me pray for us one more time. Father God, as we come before you, we come before you as Christians, as a forgiven people. All of our sins. You have cast them away. The psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. But forgiveness is not cheap. It's not something that you just extend easily because you are just there's a cost. That cost was your own beloved son who became for us the means of salvation. He took the penalty. Though innocent, he took your wrath and he rose from the dead and by means of his death and resurrection, if we will simply believe, we can enter into that forgiveness and be a forgiven person, Lord. And There's so many in our community this morning who are waking up this morning unforgiven. There are people who are trying to sleep off a hangover. There are people who are in desperate straits. Some are suicidal. But it's not just people without, Lord. It's people within that struggle with forgiveness. We struggle with it as believers. We struggle with it in the church, in our marriages, in our friendships. And Father, we need a healing balm. We need your heart to truly forgive. We're going to acknowledge as we pray, Lord, that forgiveness can be a challenging thing to us. And we need to understand what you say about it and what we're to do about it. Ultimately, Lord, this is another area of the Christian life that can only truly be accomplished by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we're just going to ask that you would move mightily in our midst and give us ears to hear what you want to say to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, here's the verses, Mark eleven twenty five. And whenever you stand praying, Mark eleven twenty five, forgive. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. He says, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions, but if you do not forgive Neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. That's Mark 11, 25 and 26. I want you to notice that in both verses, the word is transgression. It's not the word sins. And there's a difference in both Hebrew and Greek of the idea. When you, when you read the word for sin in the New Testament, it's a word called hamartia. And that, that's a word that just simply means we all are imperfect we all miss the bullseye. We're all, you know, we're all sinners. We miss the mark. But that's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is a transgression. The best way simply to explain a transgression is that we know the line. Let's say we, we can look at a commandment of God, thou shall not do this. And we see the line and it's clear in our minds and we still decide to step over it. We, here's the word, we transgress it. We step over that line and it becomes sin. The word transgress means an error. It means uh, to do something with willful intent. It's not simply 
oops, I made a mistake. It's no, I really thought that one through and I decided to do it anyway. And that's the word here for, uh, that's used here for transgressions. Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. I would say to you that forgiveness is probably one of those things that we all think we've done really well until we start revisiting our past and maybe even our recent past. And we realize that forgiveness can be a tricky thing. I want to define the word for a second just so we all understand what forgiveness is because it's one of those words that we can easily pass by and say, I know what it means. But here's what, for, what forgiveness is. It's a Greek word called aphemi, and it literally means, here's a definition if you're taking notes, forgiveness means to send, to send forth, to send away. It has the idea of this, that when you truly forgive somebody, you send away what they did. You get rid of it. It's no longer there. It's captured in an Old Testament account of the scapegoat. And what Israel would do on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, is they would have two goats. One goat would be slaughtered, and another goat would be sent off into the wilderness. And the high priest was supposed to lay hands on the head of the goat, in this case the scapegoat, and he was to confess the sins of the nation. And once he did that, and I think this is largely symbolic, but he would, he would confess the sins, and that, and that scapegoat would be released into the wilderness. The idea was, symbolically, never to be seen again. And that's the idea of what God does with our sins. They're never to come back. They're never to be revisited. They go off somewhere where they're gone forever. They, they are buried in the depth of the sea, to uh, use another uh, biblical analogy, and there's a no fishing sign posted there, <laughs> which is really good news. However, they found out something about this scapegoat. It was kind of like your lost cat or your lost dog. Sometimes the scapegoat would come back and it would ruin the whole picture because here it came back. No, carrying all of our sins. No. So they actually took some extreme measures. And uh, as the Day of Atonement unfolded in the life of Israel, they would actually take this goat and they would take it to the brow of a hill and they would throw it off the hill to ensure that it would not return with the sins of the people. In the ministry of Jesus, when he's in his own hometown in Nazareth, he preaches in the synagogue there, and it says that the people were amazed at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. Later, even his enemies would say, nobody ever spoke like this man spoke. But when he began to address some hard subjects in the synagogue, the Bible says the town folk took him to the brow of a hill and they were intending to throw him off. And one uh, Messianic pastor has pointed out that that's a connection to the scapegoat story from Leviticus 16. And if you've read that account before, you know the Bible says that Jesus just passed by. It didn't happen. They didn't kill him because it wasn't his time to die. And that's not the way in which he would die, but it's an interesting connection to the scapegoat. Here's why I bring this up. Because sometimes with all of our good intentions as people, we want to send away what people have done to us. We want to forgive them. We don't want to rehash it. We want to truly bury the hatchet, and we don't want to leave the handle sticking out for a later convenient time. Amen? We say, you know, we've forgiven people, but then we bring things up from, you know, the 1980s, for those of us who have been alive that long. Do you remember when you took the last cookie? 
1986. I never forgot that. <laughs> that kind of stuff. It's usually not about that minor of a thing, but to forgive someone has these ideas. It means to leave it alone, to release it, to liberate, to let go, to send off, to hurl away, to pardon, to leave behind, to let it be, to give it up. All these, if you look up Greek lexicons, these are all definitions you can find for the word forgiveness. How you doing in that category? Ooh. Forgiveness is a hard thing. It's a bit of a tricky thing, too, because it's one of those things that we wonder about. Like, do we automatically forgive people? Do we, how do you navigate things like this? We all, you know, it kind of hits our hearts because we, forgiveness is something that is essential to all of us and impacts all of us. We've all been, we've all been hurt and wounded in this room by people, sometimes people very close to us. And when you've been hurt and wounded, sometimes it's very hard. Some of you have some tragic episodes of your past. I have some people very near and dear to me that have some very tragic episodes in their past. They can still revisit the time and the face and the words. You know, there's an old playground rhyme that says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But do you know that's a lie? I mean, we can remember words that were spoken to us some, for some of us decades ago that really had an impact on us. They're more devastating than a broken bone. A broken bone heals, but sometimes broken hearts don't. Forgiveness is essential in all relationships, marriage, family, church. Uh, I would tell you that oftentimes when I'm doing a wedding ceremony, I talk about the essential uh, reality of forgiveness to a couple that's walking up for the first time to seal a covenant. And I often say, forgiveness will move your marriage forward and unforgiveness will move your marriage backward. We must keep short accounts with our spouses because we realize that in the tight quarters in which we live, everyday life, there's all these opportunities to wrong somebody, even when we don't intend it. Sometimes we've hurt somebody and we don't even realize what we've done. Have you ever had somebody come to you and they express to you that they've been holding on to resentment in their heart over some exchange and you're like, what exchange? <laughs> and, and for years they've been holding on to something and you didn't even realize and maybe it was a word you said in passing or even a perception about body language. Ever had that happen before? I thought you were mad at me, Pastor Michael. What are you talking about? Well, you were getting your maple bar and you didn't, you didn't look at me. That's because I was focused on my maple bar, man. It had nothing to do with you. <laughs> man, we can, we can have all these misgivings about, you know, relationships. And, and we can even come to the worst of conclusions when someone didn't really intend anything, but somehow we took that personally. There's so many issues that come from this idea of forgiveness. Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, Mark eleven twenty five, 25, forgive. The, uh, the normal Jewish way to pray was to stand. Sometimes they would stand actually lifting their hands in prayer. We often feel like, well, maybe we should kneel or bow our heads or close our eyes. 
But sometimes the Jews would actually stand and lift their eyes up when they prayed. Have you ever looked at a, a room when someone's praying and somebody has their eyes open, you begin to judge people with their eyes open? They're not really praying right now. Look at them. Their eyes are open. Well, how did you see them? It's always interesting how that works, huh? Well, I, I just looked for a second. Well, maybe they were just looking for the second you opened your eyes. Yeah, I know. And Jesus, in very sweeping language, check this out. He says, if you, when you pray, and that assumes that you're praying regularly, shouldn't just rush past that, right? Jesus doesn't say, if you pray. He says, whenever you pray. If you have an NIV, it says, when you pray. That assumes that you pray. I hope you pray. I hope you're praying regularly. If you have anything against anyone... Now, anybody looking for loopholes in this passage is probably not going to find it. Because these are very sweeping statements. Anything against anyone? Lord, can you clarify? Does it, do the, can we get the Greek definition of those words? Anything against anyone? Clarification? Any small print in the contract? Uh, no, nothing. Anything against anyone, forgive them. Oh, wow. Wow, that is a challenge. And then it gets even more challenging, which we'll talk about here in a second, that your heavenly Father may forgive you. Forgiveness is the act of excusing or pardoning another in spite of his or her slights, shortcomings, and errors. It's a theological term, forgiveness is, and it ultimately points to God's pardon of us as human beings. I prayed in the beginning and mentioned a few of those ideas from the Old Testament. If the Lord kept a record of sins, oh, oh Lord, who could stand? You know, the Bible teaches that as a Christian, you are forgiven, that God's never going to bring up those things that he's forgiven. He's forgotten them. Now, I don't think that theologically that means that God doesn't know what you did. And I don't think that that means practically that we're not going to remember what people did to us. When God says, I will remember their sins no more, here's what it means. It means he chooses to not hold them against us anymore. He chooses to forget the slight. I mean, never one time as a believer will you ever come to God and say, God, will you please forgive me? And God says, nope. Sorry, not this time. You've exhausted the limit. You know, Peter, when he was having an interchange with Jesus, he said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Three times? That's what the rabbis taught. Peter probably thought he was doing good. Or No, he said seven times, right? Seven times. The rabbis taught three. And Jesus said, I say to you, 70 times 7. Mathematicians, what does that equal? Oh, boy, that was weak. Oh, far, far. <laughs> you got, do you guys need more coffee? What's going on? As far, maybe you don't know the answer, which is even more scary. But I forgive you. Anyway, 70 times 7. So, so, so we might say, okay, on the 491st time, then, can you imagine? 
forgiving somebody of the same thing 490 times? Wow. Scholars have pointed out that this, point, this probably points to an inexhaustible number using the sevens as a number that's inexhaustible. The immediate audience, uh, I've told you about the verses here, the definition. If you're taking notes, the verses, the definition, here's the audience. The immediate audience is actually the apostles. Look back at verse 25. He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. I think it's insightful to know the audience, the immediate audience, because the immediate audience is the apostles, and we know what they've been doing lately, right? They've been arguing about which of them is the greatest They've been having disputes, constant arguments. Jesus has been trying to straighten them out on the issue. And in fact, there's one recent verse that we studied in Mark 10 where James and John have come to Jesus and asked for the best spots when he enters into his kingdom. And it says the 10, the other 10 apostles who didn't get to Jesus first to ask for those spots, the Bible says they were indignant angry with, the, with James and John for asking such a thing. Do you think it's possible that the 12 apostles had unforgiveness in their hearts towards one another? I think so. Think about the backdrop. Jesus is just days away from the cross. They've already gone to Jerusalem. We've already watched him clean out the temple, turn over the money changers' tables. He's about to die on Passover, days away from the cross, and he looks at the 12, and they are holding resentment and unforgiveness in their hearts, and the Lord has to be thinking, I'm about to pass on a gospel. I'm going back to heaven, and they are going to have to communicate the forgiveness that I'm about to pay for at the cross, and they can't even get along. Oh, my goodness. Until we look at the modern church. And we know that sometimes within the modern church, even the walls of the modern church, there's unforgiveness and resentment towards other Christians. How can we tell people about the good news of forgiveness in Jesus Christ if we can't even forgive those closest to us? If we're holding on to resentment and bitterness, Jesus says these words and they are staggering. Look at verse 25. He says, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. And then verse 26 is in brackets because it's not in the earliest and best manuscripts, but it's, a, it's taken from the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 15, which you may want to just make a note of. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. You don't really have to worry about whether or not that's an original because he already said it in verse 25. So that your father also is in heaven may forgive your transgressions. Now, you might be asking a theological question. I've been asking it all week. Does that mean that if I don't forgive people, God won't forgive me? I don't think it means that in the ultimate judicial sense. Stick with me for a second. Put your thinking cap on. You are not saved by your forgiving of other people. You are saved by grace through what? faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one should boast. If my forgiveness before Almighty God was based upon me forgiving every person that I've ever had anything with or against, I might be in some trouble. Although I don't want to downplay this either, and I will say to you this. Forgiveness should be the normal part of a 
a Christian's experience. And if you have continual unforgiveness against multiple people, you might want to ask yourself whether or not you're a Christian. And here's why. For those who have been forgiven of so many things, how can we withhold forgiveness? Now, I am not talking about those difficult, singular cases where we've been wounded. We had a phone call on the Bible Answer Show uh, just this last week, and a woman said she was struggling with fear. And somebody in her life, some well-meaning Christian, said her fear is a sin. And that uh, it was keeping her back from doing things that she wanted to do, but she had gone through this trauma and she was trying to deal with it. Look, I think there are times when forgiveness must be a process. And here's why. Because I think if you try to say you've forgiven somebody and it's not true, then you're just trying to do something to be back in good standing with God. It's like, could I run through a naughty list of people who have done me wrong? Okay, this person, this, yeah, I, I forgive him, forgive him, forgive him, forgive him, forgive, forgive. I'm right with you now, right, God? That sounds to me more like a religious duty or even a work. I think God knows that sometimes it's going to be a process for us, but I do have questions about all of these things. Let me ask you a question. What is your biggest block to extending forgiveness to people? Could it be pride, hurt, bitterness? There's a story about a traveler making his way with a guide through the jungles of Burma, they came to a shallow but wide river and waded through it to the other side. When the traveler came out of the river, numerous leeches had attached to his torso and legs. His first instinct was to grab them and pull them off. The guide stopped him, warning that pulling the leeches off would only leave tiny pieces of them under the skin. Eventually, infection would set in. The best way to rid the body of the leeches, the guide advised, was to bathe in a warm balsam bath for several minutes. This would soak the leeches, and soon they would release their hold on the man's body. This writer says, When I've been significantly injured by another person, I cannot simply yank the injury from myself and expect that all bitterness, malice, and emotion will be gone. Resentment still hides under the surface. The only way to become truly free of the offense and to forgive others is to bathe in the soothing bath of God's forgiveness of me. When I finally fathom the extent of God's love in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of others is a natural overflow. You know, it's one thing to preach this and even read verses on it, but how many times have we all found in our heart that even little things we can hold on to resentment and unforgiveness? You know, it could be a minor offense, but we're like, well, how dare you? How could you do that to me? And all of a sudden we can find that Forgiveness is not as easy as some might say. I don't think that your forgiveness is uh, based upon whether or not you forgive people in an ultimate sense. But I think your forgiveness, assuming that you're a Christian this morning, will affect your prayer life and will affect your relationship with others. And I do think it's something that you have to take a hard look at because I think that the issue here for believers is more about the closeness of fellowship with God and with others. I was listening to a pastor this last week, and he said, unforgiveness leads to bitterness, division, hatred, unquenched anger, pride, resentment. It can cause our hearts to become so hard and calloused that it can affect our ability to love and to trust others. 
And ultimately it, if unforgiveness, if it's an ongoing attitude, could very well make evident that we are not believers at all. Now let's look a little deeper. Let's ask the question, what's at stake here? Number one, if you're taking notes, and I'm asking the question now, what's at stake here? Our relationship with God and others is at stake here. I want you to turn for a moment to the Lord's Prayer, what's known as the Lord's Prayer, which is Matthew 6. Matthew 6. The disciples had asked Jesus a critical question. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. They had watched him pray so many times, and finally they decided they'd ask him how they should pray. This is not a prayer I do not believe that has to be repeated word for word as a regular prayer, although there's no problem with that. And if you enjoy doing that, that's fine. But I think what Jesus is really teaching is the essence of how our normal prayer life should look and what the content of those prayers should be. Matthew 6, 9, Jesus says, pray then in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6, 11. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if, Matthew 6, 14, you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Perhaps this is a, since this is in the Sermon on the Mount, the famous Sermon on the Mount, perhaps one of the ways that we should take this is that we should take this as the difference between a person who claims to be religious in a ritual way and a person who's truly regenerate. I think there's a difference between a person who says they believe in God and a person who's actually born again. I think that this will be the regular part of a born-again believer's life is to extend and receive forgiveness. God's forgiveness of sin is not the direct result of our forgiving others, but it is based on our realizing what forgiveness means in our lives. And we should uh, uh, note here that Jesus is mentioning twice when you pray. Now, I'd ask you to turn to Matthew 18, same book, Matthew 18. We'll look at verses, uh, we'll start in verse 21 there. But I want to remind you that in Mark 11, Jesus had just talked about mountain-moving faith. He said to the apostles in Mark 11, and you go back and look at this later, he said, I say to you, if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and you believe and you don't doubt, it'll happen. Now, the common Jewish expression that we all need to understand is the Jews saw a mountain being removed or relocated as a mountain of challenges and difficulties. It's very common in Jewish vernacular to say, I have a mountain of problems. And Jesus said, that mountain can be removed by praying faith. Now, here is the analogy I want to give you this morning. I think sometimes the hardest mountains to move in our lives are not to say to a literal mountain, move and watch it go... I think it has to do with a mountain of difficulty. And one of the main difficulties that we have sometimes is letting go of hurts and wounds. And sometimes, stick with me, brothers and sisters, they begin to rise up like a mountain in our lives. 
They stack one upon another. And sometimes we feel like we're under the weight of that mountain. And often that mountain obscures people's view of the gospel. How can a Christian holding on to resentment and bitterness in their heart that's become a mountain in their own lives show forth the glory of the gospel? We, uh, we saw the case in South Carolina when that man, um, I don't remember how long ago it was now, but it was a while ago, but not that long ago, went into a South Carolina church, joined the Bible study, had a gun, and killed multiple people inside that church in South Carolina. Just devastating. They welcomed him in. It certainly appeared to be a hate crime. He was a white guy. He shot a bunch of black people. He was trying to make a statement. It came out that there was stuff about his past where there was racism there. But he killed some of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And what amazed me about those families is that when he was being... um, He was in the court and uh, the family members had a chance to address him one after the other. They were extending forgiveness to that man. They were saying, look, you took one of the most important people in my life away from me, but I forgive you. And I pray that God will have mercy on your soul. And I tell you what, folks, you look at that and you're like, wow. That that is an incredible, uh, I, I guess you would say, an incredible testimony to the gospel. In Matthew 18, verse 21, let's pick up the story there. Peter came and said to him, Lord, how, Matthew 18, 21, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 18, 23, may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves or servants. When he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. Let's just say that that number is a number where he could never pay off what he owed this king. It would take him something like 16,000 years if he gave all his daily wages to the king to pay off this debt. But since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children, all that he had and repayment be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, the king, and he said, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion. And he released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, about three months worth of wages for a common laborer. And he seized him and he began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however. He went and threw him in uh, prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. They came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So my heavenly Father, so shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. 
It is interesting to think about the fact that this story is shared in a famous chapter, Matthew 18, namely verses 15 through 20, that deals with church discipline. In fact, Jesus tells this story right on the heels of talking to his followers about discipline in the church. And here's what he basically means. He's saying, look, forgiveness does not mean that sin isn't serious. Forgiveness does not mean that there shouldn't be church discipline. Forgiveness does not mean that sin does not have consequences. Forgiveness does not mean that sometimes even when you forgive a person, your relationship cannot be salvaged. All of those are reality. I think we need to understand the Bible from the full perspective that sometimes a person is forgiven like King David of his sin with Bathsheba, but the consequences followed like night follows day. David was told the child's going to die. What you did in secret, your sons are going to do on the rooftops, and the sword is never going to leave your house. Consequences. Yet the moment David asks for forgiveness, it was extended to him. Here's my point. Just because you forgive somebody, it does not mean that they're not going to have to deal with the consequences. And sometimes forgiveness is probably more important to us than it is to that other person. Example. When I was four years old, my father left our family. He decided to cheat on my mom and uh, leave the family, and I never saw him again. He called me one time when I was 18 because he thought he was dying of a heart attack and it turned out to be a false uh, scare. He made a promise during that telephone call. He lived in Chicago area. We are in Southern California at the time. He said, I'm going to come and visit you. He never showed up. Some years later, uh, I was on an Ancestry website and I was able to, to look. You know, Someone in the office was telling me to check this out and I looked. I put my dad's name in and I found out that uh, morning that my dad had died three years before that. And so there was, you know, look, as an individual, we always hold out hope that if someone's let us down in our past, maybe there's a chance that we can reconcile. Maybe someone will come to their senses. Maybe there'll be an opportunity for reconciliation or redemption of that person. But it was over. And I had to settle something in my heart. I had to forgive my father. I don't know if my forgiveness meant anything to him because he never spoke to me and he never knew what was going on in my heart. But I needed to forgive my dad. Everybody understand that? I needed to let it go. I needed to release my father into God's hands and say, Lord, whatever was going on in his life, he made his decisions and I'm just going to release him into your care. I don't know if my dad's in heaven I don't know if my dad did any business with God before he died. I have no idea. But, I, but for the sake of who I am and what resentment and bitterness would do to me, I'm letting it go. And, you know, sometimes our forgiveness has very little to do with anybody. Years ago, when Bill Clinton was up to his shenanigans in the White House, Billy Graham was interviewed, and Billy Graham said, I forgive Bill Clinton. And some of us said, well, Billy, that's nice, but I'm not sure that that really matters. I understand what Billy Graham was saying. He was extending grace, but none of us really knew if Bill Clinton had repented of what he did. And ultimately, what had to happen there is that that act, which is duplicated on this planet, who knows how many times during a week, 
was really between that person and God and the person that he had, persons that he had sinned against. Everybody with me? So sometimes we just forgive people because that's what we need to do. And as a believer, the Bible says these words, if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, a lot of you have been around the church for a number of years, and you know that 1 John 1, 9 is a verse that's written to Christians. Some people debate that, but I have no doubt it's written to Christians. I don't think that 1 John 1, 9 is talking about that every time I confess my sin, I'm saved over and over and over again. I don't think that's what the Bible's teaching. But I think what it's saying is that I need a practical forgiveness. There's a difference between a once-for-all judicial forgiveness, here's what I mean, where God, as in a court of law, says, no longer guilty because my son paid for Michael Lance's sins. But there's a practical forgiveness, and here's what I think 1 John 1.9 is after. I think it's talking about things that muddy my relationship with God or things that can be a hindrance to intimate fellowship with God, and that is unforgiveness in my heart. There's a parallel text that we'll take a look at together, and it's found in 1 Peter. Let's go over there, 1 Peter chapter 3. So towards the back of your New Testament, 1 Peter 3, just a single verse, but it's an important one. It's talking about a marriage here, 1 Peter 3. And the wives are addressed in verses 1 through 6, and the husbands are addressed in verse 7 of 1 Peter 3. Here's what it says. You husbands, 1 Peter 3, 7, likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor, 1 Peter 3, 7, as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, the weakness there is the woman's femininity. It doesn't mean that she's less than a man in all categories. It just means that typically men have wider shoulders than women, and she's feminine. She's a woman, so she needs to be cared for in a special way. It's talking really about her physical weakness uh, as less than a man. If you want to bear this out, when you go home, arm wrestle your wife. If you're a man in this room, you should win. If you lose, you're pathetic. And we need to get you on a workout program. But I digress. <laughs> because the, the context is actually looking at a husband's treatment of his wife and saying, if you mistreat her, get this, gentlemen, your prayers will be hindered. What prayers? Some, some scholars say your prayers for an unbelieving wife, possible. But it may well be that God will say, if you are mistreating your wife, don't bother praying. Go make it right first. Similar words Jesus shares in Matthew 5, it's around verse 22, 23 where he says, look, leave the gift at the altar and go be reconciled first. Don't play a religious game when you are mistreating your wife that you're supposed to love as Christ loved the church and then think that you can go and pray and everything's gonna be fine and God's just gonna give you all that you pray for. Uh-uh. Your prayers are gonna be hindered. I think God's gonna say, you better deal with that first before you come to me for anything. Don't ask me for blessings if you can't even love the one that you committed to love. Now look, 
That doesn't mean we're not going to have issues. That doesn't mean we're not going to have problems. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have times when we have to, you know, chill out, walk away, wake up the next morning and say, I'm sorry. You know, some, some uh, marriage ministries have said, you know, they've taken the verse, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And they've said, that verse means that before you go to bed, you got to work everything out. I don't think that that's what that verse means. Because if you take it literally, it means before the sun goes down, you got to work it out, which could be five o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> what it's meaning is reconcile as quickly as you can. But sometimes the best thing you can do is say, let's take a T.O., baby. That's a timeout. And let's cool our jets before this gets dumber and stupider. Is that a word? Stupider? And this just turns into a bunch of things that we're going to regret. Let's chill out. I'm going to go do some business with God. You do some business with God. And we'll come back and talk about this. Amen? Amen. Now, there's a couple other verses I'm going to point out. First one is in Ephesians 4.32. And this is how it works with Christians. Let's turn there. Ephesians 4.32. Here's what Paul says. He's been talking about putting on the new man, the clothing of the new nature, Ephesians 4.32. And he says these words. And, and before you get there, let me just explain that I think that in order for a Christian to regularly forgive, you've got to put on the clothing of the new nature, which is almost synonymous with the armor of God. Okay? When you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives you the power, the eyesight, the willingness to forgive when everything in you says, no, not going to do it. And then you go into your prayer closet and you say, oh, Lord, clothe me with your power, clothe me with your heart. This is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, by the way. These are all synonymous terms. Clothed with the new man, armor of God. They all mean that God is dominating your life. And then you can do things that you never thought you could do before. Like get the words out of your mouth. I forgive you. Or sometimes it's, will you forgive me? Have you ever, anybody, you ever tried that one before? Oh, that was, there's like two people in the room. <laughs> Boy, when we finish up, we're going to do some business with the Lord this morning. It was more than two. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ, what? Also has forgiven you. You should forgive each other. Did you, did you all get that? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Not one time will you ever come to the Lord and he says, I won't forgive you. Just a little bit to your right is the book of Colossians. Go to chapter three. Look at verse 12. This again is a treatment of the new man. Colossians three twelve says, and so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Who writes this? Everybody? Paul. You think Paul had some things to try to forgive people for? Ever followed his missionary journeys in the book of Acts? 
Ever read his letter to the Corinthians? Where they're saying, you're not terribly impressive. We're not even sure you're apostle. And in fact, we prefer Apollos and Peter over you. Ouch. The guy that planted that church was being mocked by people in the church, leadership in the church. And Paul says, and beyond all these things, Colossians 3.14, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Keep reading. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Folks, this is how you do it. This is how you forgive. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How can you hold on to resentment when that's your attitude, right? And whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And then take a look. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, everybody, all the kids in here, take a look. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And fathers, don't exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. The Bible is very practical. As we turn back to the book of Mark, we'll wind it down. Jesus is saying, look, you guys need to forgive each other because you're about to take this gospel to the ends of the earth and you're too busy fighting. We could say that unforgiveness is ultimately a fruit of the flesh. Galatians 5.20 says, the fruits of the flesh are idolatry, sorcery, listen to this list, this list enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying. That's Galatians 5.20 and 21. Sure seems to me that a lot of problems that we have with infighting among people is because we let the flesh dominate instead of the spirit. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. Some, some people think that taking up your cross, you know, has a myriad of reasons, a myriad of definitions, like my cross is my boss or my cross is the freeway. Think about what the cross means. When you take up your cross and follow Jesus, what's the cross a symbol of for Christians? The ultimate act of forgiveness. Could it be, Christians, that to take up your cross is going to be manifested perhaps in one big piece of that pie and you're forgiving other people? Isn't the cross the ultimate symbol of forgiveness? We sit here and we talk about taking up our cross and we think, well, maybe it's a difficult person or difficult circumstances. It may well be, but could it be that when Jesus says, take up your cross, at least part of what he's saying is forgive each other regularly. It's from that cross that Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. Psalm, 83, Psalm 86, verse five, your abundant and loving kindness to all who call upon thee. Love, 1 Corinthians 13, 5, keeps no record of wrongs. None. Zero. No record. That's what love does. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It releases it. It lets it go. Do you know there are people who are sick this morning? And I'm talking about people who are in mental institutions and if you were to get to the bottom of what's going on in their souls, I bet you a lot of it has to do with unforgiveness, resentment, hatred, guilt, 
and a myriad of other things that make people sick. In fact, unforgiveness can have a physical toll on your body. But the Bible says, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account, Romans 4, 8. And could I add, how blessed is the believer who forgives because you never have that stirring in your heart to weigh you down. One writer tells of a tribe in Polynesia where it was customary for each man to keep some reminders of his hatred for others. These reminders were suspended from the roofs of their huts to keep alive the memory of wrongs, real or imagined. Oh, yeah, that's when he did that to me. Yeah. (laughs) And we don't hang them from our roofs, probably. But sometimes they're still hanging from our hearts. In his recent book, How Small a Whisper, Roger Carswell relates an amazing story of a Christian family's response to tragedy. In May of 1987, 39 American seamen were killed in the Persian Gulf when an Iraqi pilot hit their ship, the USS Stark, with a missile. Newspapers carried a picture of the son of one of these seamen, a shy five-year-old boy named John Kaiser. He was standing with his hand on his heart as his father's coffin was loaded onto a plane to take him back to the USA. His mother said, quote, I don't have to mourn or wear black because I know my husband is in heaven. I am happy because I know he is better off. Later on, she and her young son, John, sent a letter and an Arabic New Testament to the pilot of the Iraqi plane addressed to, quote, the man who attacked the Stark, dad's ship, in the hope that it will show that even the son and the wife do not hold any grudge and are at the same time praying for the one who took the life of our father. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? I don't know what you may be dealing with personally this morning, but I have a feeling that some of you are here and God has spoken directly to some situations. In fact, I would venture to say that some of you have seen faces and individuals and replayed scenarios in your heart and mind this morning that still weigh heavy on your heart. Now, I'm not saying this is easy, and I'll tell you this. As I preach this, I'm preaching to myself. I'm not talking down to anyone. But I am saying this, that it would be good for the forgiven community to practice forgiveness as regularly as we can as much as it is possible, as much as it depends on us, we're to live at what? Peace with all people. There are some people who don't want peace with you right now. You do your part. That's all God is going to ask of you. And then you leave the rest to God. I'm going to take you back to Colossians. Final verse, said the preacher. Colossians 2. I'm going to show you the great forgiveness that we've all received in Christ. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. If you can hear my voice, and uh, let's look at Colossians 2, 13 through 15. This is who we are in Christ. Colossians 2, 13. It says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, Colossians 2, 13, having forgiven us, how many? All our what? Transgressions. There's that same word. Not just that we're imperfect, but even the big mistakes that we've made. Having canceled out the certificate of debt or the written code consisting of decrees against us, 
which was hostile to us, he, that is Jesus, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. One writer says, we might better understand the expression having nailed it to the cross if we remember what was customary under Roman law when a criminal was executed was to hang a placard above his head indicating the nature of the crime so that all would know why Rome was administering this vengeance or justice. J.B. Phillips says, Christ utterly wiped out the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments which was also hung over our heads. He removed it and nailed it to the cross. John MacArthur said, canceled out means to wipe off. It's like erasing a blackboard. Ancient documents were commonly written on either papyrus or paper-like material made with bulrush plant or vellum, which was made from an animal's hide. The ink used then had no acid in it and did not soak into the writing material. Since the ink remained on the surface, it could be wiped off uh, by the scribe if he wanted to reuse the material. Paul says here that God has wiped off our certificate of debt. He has erased it in full. He is no longer holding our sins against us. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. And now we have a ministry. And our ministry, since we're a new creation in Christ, is a ministry of reconciliation. See, God has reconciled us back to himself through his son. He's no longer charging our sins against us. And we have received now a ministry of reconciliation as though God were pleading through us for people to be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. We have a ministry. It's a ministry to proclaim from the housetops that forgiveness is available in Christ if we will simply turn and trust in him. He bore in his body our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds we were healed. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you that we were all like sheep going astray, but now we have returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. Thank you that forgiveness is ours in Christ. Lord, help us to be a forgiving people. Help that person who may be wrestling with unforgiveness. And for those who may have just a, a past experience that's hard to release to you, it's hard to release that person. I know that might be a process, but give them the grace that they need as well. Just help us to hear your voice, Lord. Whatever has been valuable from my lips, let people hold on to it. Whatever they need to just brush aside that's not from you, let them quickly forget it. But I pray that in these moments, Lord, we'll experience anew your forgiveness for us, of us and help us to extend it and receive it and in regards to other people. If you're not a Christian, you haven't experienced that first forgiveness that you need, that judicial forgiveness you must turn to Christ now. There's no time like the present. You don't know that you're going to have tomorrow. Do it today. It's something like this. If you're not a Christian, you're not sure, God forbid, if you died tonight, you would end up in heaven. Something like this. Jesus, pray it out loud if it's you. Save me. Thank you that love drove you to that cross. Thank you that love held you to that cross. Thank you that you paid the price for my sin. Thank you for your resurrection. I believe and I turn to you. I ask that you'll forgive me of my sins. Give me a new start. 
Help me to forgive others who have hurt me. Help me even to forgive myself this morning. If you're a prodigal and you've been running from God, or maybe you just, there's some things that have stirred in your heart because of this morning, lay them at the feet of Jesus. Lay them at the foot of the cross. Release that stuff to God. We often talk about letting go of fear and anger. Let's let go of unforgiveness. Father, help us to release it to you. And I pray for the precious people here at Living Truth. You'll just bless them, strengthen them in every way they need it. In Jesus' name, amen.